and welcome to the Trial Talk podcast. I'm your host, Charlotte Hartley, and I'm a Science Communications Officer at the MRC Clinical Trials Unit at UCL. In this show, we explore the clinical trial landscape by talking to the clinicians and researchers behind the work we do. If you're interested in learning how our research can help improve healthcare in the UK and around the world, this is the podcast for you. This is the first episode in our series on Stampede, a very large and long-running trial in advanced prostate cancer. After 18 years, it recently finished recruiting new patients, bringing the grand total to nearly 12,000 participants. Stampede is a huge trial which has had an enormous impact on clinical practice. There's a lot to discuss, so we're going to cover it over three parts. In part one, we're exploring why the trial came about and how it was designed. I'm speaking to two researchers who've been involved from the very start, Professor Max Palmer and Professor Nick James. My name is Professor Max Palmer. I'm director of the MRC Clinical Trials Unit at UCL, and uh, I'm a statistician by training and have a particular interest in how we can speed up the evaluation of new agents to uh, improve outcomes for patients as quickly as possible through randomised clinical trials. I'm Professor Nick James. I'm Professor of Prostate and Bladder Cancer Research at the Institute of Cancer Research and the Royal Marston Hospital in London, uh, previously uh, up in Birmingham for a large chunk of the trial, and I have a long-standing interest in the treatment of advanced prostate cancer. Stampede first opened in 2005, so first let's rewind to the early 2000s. Nick James tells us about the outlook for people with advanced prostate cancer before Stampede. So the design of the trial started in 2002, and um, in the 1990s, there there was a huge disparity between, for example, breast cancer and prostate cancer research spend, at least 10 to 1 um, pound for pound difference. And there had been really almost no change in the management of advanced prostate cancer since the 1940s, when it was described that androgen deprivation would cause regression of advanced prostate cancer. So... Although the ways that we were able to achieve androgen suppression had changed over the subsequent 60 years, the fundamental biology hadn't, and the fundamental prognosis had not. If you were diagnosed with metastatic prostate cancer, you'd expect to have around 18 months response to androgen deprivation, and then you'd relapse with what was then called hormone refractory prostate cancer. We don't call it that anymore. And you could expect to live another 12 to 18 months with really very poor quality of life. And that really was unchanged for a very long time. And the um, the thing that started happening in the late 1990s is that research groups and pharmaceutical companies realised that there was a massive unmet need and new drugs were appearing in the clinic that looked set to improve outcomes. And, and indeed, they did. Um, so the motivation to the trial was to ask the question, how can we incorporate some probably more than one of these new treatments into a into a trial designed for the maximum impact. One of the most revolutionary features of Stampede was its multi-arm, multi-stage, or MAMS, design. This allowed the trial to test multiple treatments at once. Max Palmer, who leads the methodology side of Stampede, explains this in more detail. What we have done for many, many years is when uh, evaluating new therapies, we've usually compared that against a standard therapy, which is being used in practice and done it in a a two-arm fashion, 
comparing uh, the, the new treatment with the uh, uh, old or standard treatment. What we realized in the late 1990s, early 2000s, was that actually this was a, a very slow process. And often we'd find that the new was no better than the standard. It was a very slow way of making progress, not least because the trials themselves would take many, many years, sometimes decades to complete and report. And then at the end of that, to find actually you'd made no progress because the new was not better than the standard was very disappointing and was contributing to making little or no progress in a range of diseases. So we came up with the idea that a very simple idea of why, why can't we evaluate many new treatments at once, knowing a number of them will fail, but that some of them may well be successful. Uh, so that's the multi-arm nature of it, allowing for the fact that you know that many might fail, the multi-stage nature of it was at various points in time comparing each of the new arms, research arms, against the standard or control arm in a, in a multi-arm trial to say, is it worth evaluating this therapy further, randomizing further patients to uh, a therapy if we've got some evidence that actually there's going to be little or no benefit to this new treatment. So that's the multi-arm, multi-stage component. Uh, later on and down the line, we came up with the idea that not only could you drop arms in that fashion, in the stages, i.e. cease randomizing further patients to certain research arms, but you could then also add arms, add new arms as the trial continued. And the ideas are very simple, uh, but it can hugely speed up the, the process. And was Stampede the first clinical trial to use this design? The first trial that we started this in was actually in ovarian cancer in the, done in the late 1990s, the ICON-5 trial, which tested four different chemotherapy regimens against a, 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 a standard uh, control arm. And although that was designed as a multi-arm, multi-stage trial, it recruited so quickly, we didn't have a chance to do the stages. We just had many... Uh, arms compared to control. What was interesting was, despite testing many different regimens in that trial, they all failed to show any benefit compared to control. So uh, one positive about that, if we, had if we had tested them sequentially against control, that would have taken us decades. At least that trial just took us five years to show actually pretty reliably that those four new chemotherapy regimens did not uh, improve outcomes for women with ovarian cancer when compared to the control. And that was a, a basis for leading on to the Stampede design. Pioneering the multi-arm, multi-stage design wasn't the only way that Stampede stood out from other clinical trials. At that time, all trials being carried out in prostate cancer, without any exception, were in men who'd failed standard treatment. But the, but the time to treatment failure was so predictable and the outcome so dismal once you'd failed standard treatment that we thought we would actually be bolder and put our new treatment into first-line therapy to newly diagnosed patients. And that is kind of, yeah, a large proportion of all trials in prostate cancer are now in that space, but we were the first into that space. Nobody else had done trials there before. And that was, that was key because it meant we were treating people while they were fit rather than when they were heavily burdened with metastatic disease and symptoms. So, um, it, it, and as we were subsequently able to show, the um, the proportional benefits from adding, say, those tactical 
was around 25%. And if you did it in relapsed disease, where your survival was typically a year, you're adding three months, you had 25% for three years, you got a much, much bigger absolute gain from the same relative effect. So that was another key element of the, of the initial design. Over the years, Stampede has tested many different treatments, some new and some licensed to treat other conditions already. So how did the trial team decide which treatments to include? So there were various things being trialled. So there was chemotherapy rattling around in trials. Um, there were various targeted molecular therapies, radioisotope and bisphosphonates. But we also decided we could repurpose drugs, which was another a really quite unusual thing to be doing. I, um, and um, I guess you could argue bisphosphonates was kind of repurposed, but rather more prominently repurposing, we tried celecoxib, which is a, a, an arthritis drug, essentially, which might seem a curious thing to put in a trial, but the drug had a license as a, uh, a drug for preventing progression of colorectal polyps into cancer. And the, the pathways that it targets appeared to be involved in invasion and metastasis. And there, there was sort of epidemiological evidence suggesting it was used to risk of other cancers. So it seems a reasonable thing to to take a punt on, and um, so and and that's been a theme all the way through. We've looked at repurposing um, two other drugs, metformin and estrogen patches, since as well. The last two uh, are the, the the two arms that are currently in follow up that haven't read out yet. Repurposing now is now regarded as a really positive thing and the NHS have now set up a structure in the UK to allow trials which evaluate repurposed drugs to be able then subsequently to be used in that new indication perhaps even going to the extent which the NHS structures will now do is to help you obtain a new license for it, even if the company themselves are not interested in getting a license because they have no interest in that drug anymore financially in a big way. And actually, it's just more work for them without much uh, payback. But um, obviously, there's huge potential for patient improvement with these repurposed drugs. And, uh, and of course, they're potentially very cost effective because typically they don't cost very much. Um, if you look at it in some ways, uh, the industry does repurposing all the time. It develops a new drug. The monoclonal antibodies were developed for a number of different areas, particularly for cancer, but now they've been used in a whole set of other diseases like arthritis, um, uh, multiple sclerosis, and that's repurposing by the company. They just rename the drug, call it something else, and sometimes even charge more for it. When selecting treatments for the trial, the team made sure there was a range of drug classes with different mechanisms of action. This had several benefits, like maximising the chances of finding a successful treatment, while also protecting the business interests of the pharmaceutical partners. We figured that because there was nobody doing trials in the space and there was a lot of patients, um, we thought we would trial not just the drugs with single agent, but trial them in combinations as well. Because the, by picking drugs from completely different classes, it, it, we predicted correctly that you could combine them without too much issue. You also maximise your chance of success by evaluating uh, interventions or drugs from different classes because you're attacking the the the, the tumour in different ways and 
if one doesn't prove successful, um, it's likely that other drugs in the same class are unlikely to prove successful, much more likely that another drug in another class is more likely to be successful. One of the reasons that we don't run multi-arm, multi-pharmaceutical company trials is that if drug A and drug B are quite similar to each other, no pharmaceutical company is going to, the company that owns A isn't going to want it in a trial where drug B is in the same space because whoever loses, loses 100% of their market probably. So um, uh, whereas by picking drugs from different classes like dolodronic acid or bisphosphonate and those tax for chemotherapy drugs, the question of is, is one better than the other didn't really make sense as a question because you could combine both drugs if they both work. Uh, and so it was key, the different classes um, principle to getting multiple pharmaceutical companies on board at the same time. The design, the repurposing and the treating people who were newly diagnosed were all big changes from the other prostate cancer trials of the time. Max and Nick recall how the medical research community first responded to these new ideas. Actually, when we first floated the idea, um, it, it got a, a, a best a mixed response, uh, sometimes actually quite a negative response. Uh, comments such as, uh, this is too complicated, doctors will not be able to understand this, let alone be able to do it and randomise to many arms. Funding bodies and funding committees were particularly sceptical about the ability to do this sort of trial. So it was quite a challenge, actually, initially to get um, um, the community on board. The, actually, the prostate cancer treating community, the doctors, the medical oncologists, the clinical oncologists and the surgeons did come on board in enough numbers. The hardest nut to crack was the funding committee. Uh, who were really very sceptical about it. And I do remember Nick and I having to go to a meeting with the funding committee and uh, and answer a whole set of questions about it. Um, it was like being grilled by the headmaster uh, at, at school. And luckily the patients weighed in in that discussion as well. And if I'm honest, I think we got it through the funding committee by the skin of our teeth. Having said that, it was quite a big decision for them. And you have to congratulate Cancer Research UK, the funding body who, who initially funded this trial, for supporting it initially, because at least at the time, it's appeared a really big risk. We did a lot of spade work. So we started talking about this in 2002. And we were, so one of the things we wanted to do was include chemotherapy. And at that time, um, chemotherapy was viewed as something that was borderline unethical to deliver to prostate cancer patients. And of course, it was delivered by oncologists, but most of the management of these patients was done by urologists. So in order to even get people in the trial, we had to get urologists to, to buy it and refer patients. And so I think it was key that we had Noel Clark as part of the trial management group from and designed from the get-go, who's prominent and well-respected, well-known urologist then and even more so now. But also we engaged with other people like, sadly now, the very rather late John Anderson, who died of prostate cancer while the trial was running, um, uh, a president of Baus, and again, very popular in the trench with the urologist. So we, we spent a lot of time going to urology meetings, going to oncology meetings, as well as engaging with patient groups and getting a lot of support 
across the board, really. One group in particular were instrumental in making the case for Stampede and getting it off the ground. The biggest supporters, in fact, uh, in, in my memory, were the patients. They understood why you would want to do this and the opportunity that it would give to get speedier answers and improve outcomes for patients in a much a much quicker way, uh, giving you decades of lead time on what we'd previously been doing. And we, we never did any qualitative research with patients, but I'm quite convinced that, the, that there were two reasons why it repeated so well. One is that if you're a patient, you want to go into a trial and get the new treatment. You don't want to get the old treatment. To the two-arm trials, 50-50 coin costs that you you know, coin toss that you get the, the standard treatment that you could have got anyway. If you go into a trial with six arms, you know, you've got whatever five chances out of six of getting the experimental treatment. It's much more attractive to you. But actually, the same thing applies to clinicians. Yes, it adds complexity. But again, you don't just want to put people in a trial and give half of them the treatment you'd have given anyway. So I think it, it was it was interesting for clinicians and it was interesting to patients and very attractive to both groups for the same reason. And it, it's always recruited faster than projected. You know, every time we said we think we can recruit this many patients, we turned out to be wrong, which you usually are with trial progression projections. But uniquely, in my experience with Stampede, we've been wrong to our benefit, not to our detriment. Thanks for listening to part one of our series on Stampede. Part two is all about the trial's biggest supporters, the patients. We'll look at why patient voices are important and how patient representative shapes the trial. If you'd like to learn more about Stampede, there's lots of information on the MRCCTU website and at stampedetrial.org.